Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood, and today we're going to cover again the war in Ukraine. We're going to do today's episode in two parts. I'm going to talk shortly to my colleague in New York, Crisis Group's UN Director, Richard Gowan, about what's been happening at the United Nations, in the Security Council, but also in the General Assembly, where a big majority of states this week supported a resolution condemning Russia's war in Ukraine. First, though, I'm going to talk again to Olya Olika, Crisis Group's Europe Central Asia Director. Many of you will have heard her over the past two episodes. We're going to talk about the latest fighting, Russia seemingly bogged down in some areas, but stepping up airstrikes on cities, how Western powers have responded, and whether there's any hope for diplomacy. Olya and I are actually recording in person today in a hotel in Turkey. It's very late in the evening, so you'll excuse us if we sound a bit croaky. And the sound quality may not be quite as good as usual, but Olya, it's very nice to be talking to you in person. Welcome back on. Happy to be here. So why don't we start again, Olya, with a quick sort of update of where things stand. We're recording this on Thursday, the 3rd of March in the evening, notwithstanding the fact that this may well be overtaken quickly by, by what's happening on the ground. But where does the fighting stand today? Right. So we're, this was day eight of the war. Uh, the Russians continue to make progress, slow progress. We have seen a real shift from an operation that was trying to avoid civilian casualties to one that has been bombing in residential areas and uh, with, you know, we believe attendant casualty counts. Uh, I have not seen good numbers, but we've certainly seen some very harrowing images of uh, apartment buildings destroyed. Kiev seemed to be surrounded, but then it turned out not so much. Uh, there was there were supplies and people moving in and out. Kherson uh, was um, the Russians to take control of uh, of Kherson. Kherson's in the south, um, just north of Crimea. Yeah, Kharkiv remains under attack, and uh, we also have uh, evidence of preparation for an amphibious landing um, from Black Sea Fleet. Uh, 
ship's not entirely clear exactly what is is going on there at this point. There was a lot of talk a couple of days ago about this big, uh, what, 60 kilometers long convoy of Russian military vehicles approaching Kiev, but that seems to have been partly sort of bad planning and running out of gas and getting seem, into traffic yeah. jams. And It does seem to have been several convoys uh, that kind of uh, ended up on top of each other. There was a lot of questions about why the Ukrainians weren't bombing it, uh, given that it was an awful lot of Russian trucks and gear. Uh, They have bombed some of it uh, now. Apparently, at least uh, for a while, portions of it uh, were getting Russian air support. So that was why the Ukrainians were slow to take action. Mm. And so, I mean, this is, as you say, it's day eight, so still early days. But it does seem that the Russians have made much less progress than they anticipated. It does seem, as the war goes on, that President Putin really did uh, miscalculate, that he expected things to be much easier, and yet the resistance has been really fierce. I mean, generally, the Russians have appeared to have really underestimated the the amount of fight the Ukrainians would put up. Pretty much everywhere we've seen substantial resistance. Uh, Though I will also say that uh, the Ukrainians are winning the information war quite handily, right? So if you're following Western news, you do have this uh, story of Ukrainian resistance. You actually have to dig a little bit to realize that the Russians are continuing to advance. If you're watching Russian news, you've got a completely different story, right? You've got the story of a very limited special operation just in East Ukraine, just in Donbass, where everything is going swimmingly well for Russia. This is somewhat contradicted by the um, print media reporting on humanitarian corridors out of Kiev and such, which, you know, if somebody's paying attention, will realize don't really match. But that doesn't show up uh, on television. And it certainly isn't going to show up on the radio now that they've shut down Echo Moskvi, which was uh, one of the the most prominent uh, independent uh, news media voices in Russia. And we talked last week a little bit about sort of different scenarios but it does seem, you know, at least plausible now, given, as you said, the stepping up of airstrikes on cities, greater level of destruction, given the fierce resistance that some sort of, you know, protracted war in which the Russians keep going, but the Ukrainians keep putting up resistance, you know, that's at least on the cards now. It is possible. On the other hand, negotiations also continue. Uh, All they seem to have agreed to date is uh, humanitarian corridors, and it's not clear that anybody's going to trust those. But the idea is that they will get, you know, delivery of humanitarian aid medicines, etc., into some of these cities. Not, I mean, again, not clear how that's going to be implemented, but... They are talking. And I think the problem here is that from the Russian perspective, they're going to demonstrate to the Ukrainians just how much pain is in store for them and get the Ukrainians to back down, whereas the Ukrainians feel they can demonstrate to the Russians just how much pain is in store for them. Even if they can't win, they can slow this down and make this hurt. And that's going to hurt back in Russia. It's going to hurt, you know, in Moscow. And don't the Russians want to back down? And I think until one or the other side decides that the pain to themselves outweighs the pain to the other guy, they're not going to compromise very much. And let's come back to that that dynamic in, in a moment when we talk a little bit about uh, about sort of Western policy and, and international policy towards the war. But I mean, do you want to just sort of say, first of all, I mean, the, the sort of degree of Western unity, some really astonishing changes in Western policy over the past week. You had uh, Schultz's speech in the Bundestag, you know, reversing what decades of 
German foreign policy. You've got Sweden, Finland uh, sending weapons, the European Union declaring it's going to support uh, Ukraine with, uh, with, with weapons. The speed at which, at least rhetorically, Europe is, is, is moving, uh, really quite astonishing. So, I mean, what do you, what do you make of, of the way Western powers, NATO powers have, have responded so far? So I think a lot of this is driven by just the sense that Ukraine is in the right, Russia is in the wrong, and one has a moral obligation to support, uh, while recognizing the very real need to keep Western states out of the fight because of the fear of escalation with Russia, that you don't want uh, nuclear powers and states aligned with nuclear powers uh, getting into a conflict with each other. So this is this is the way to square that circle, right? You provide assistance to Ukraine, but you don't fight. Um, and thus far, despite some saber-rattly comments from the Russians, they seem to be living with it. We'll see how long that lasts and what happens What happens next. Um, I mean, I think there's a certain amount of what I've been terming dizziness with success on the European side of more stuff to Ukraine, you know, more support, more sanctions. You know, even France, which is doing shuttle diplomacy between Kiev and Moscow, is also sending weapons to Ukraine. So I think there, and I, I think the unity is real. I think the desire to help Ukraine is real. Uh, it's not a hundred percent clear to me just how much thought has gone in to what happens after this, right? I mean, do the I don't think Western powers believe they're going to provide enough to Ukraine to really change the balance of military power. Uh, it certainly slows the Russians down, right, which is something we wrote about, that the Russians were not going to move as fast as they thought. Um, I would say I don't think we expected this much capacity, uh, either from Ukraine or from uh, the supplies get going to them. But it still, it doesn't change the overall balance of power. So, you know, I think the question here is, what's the goal of this? If the goal of this is for Ukraine to win, that's probably not going to work. If the goal of this is to improve their negotiating position, great, but to what point? I do find the supplying them to get them to a better negotiating position argument a fairly defensible one. I'm just not 100% sure that's what is actually driving policy. The idea, as you say, of, of arming Ukraine to help uh, President Zelensky, Ukrainian army, put up a better fight to help get Russia to the table to improve Ukraine's negotiating position. You suggest that's not sort of foremost on policymakers' minds, but maybe that, I mean, that maybe that, maybe that is what they're doing, if, even if that's not what they say they're doing. And I mean, there is, as you say, there is still diplomacy underway. It's not as though, notwithstanding their fury about what President Putin is, has done, is doing, as you say, Macron is still talking to him you think there is still space for diplomacy? Look, there is always space for diplomacy. I don't think we're at a place where a deal is likely soon. I think there has there's going to be more fighting before there can be a deal. Um, and the discussions going on in the negotiating table now, if they do get some humanitarian corridors put in place... Uh, things like that. I think I think that makes sense. I can't see the Ukrainians, though, for instance, agreeing to a ceasefire without Russian forces pulling back. Right? I mean, how can you agree to that? And it's hard to see right now President Putin agreeing to a ceasefire without having captured more of Ukraine. Right. So for so you know, I think it's important to keep the negotiations going, but I think having very high expectations of them 
would be a mistake at this stage. There's maybe not so much amongst policymakers. There's a lot of talk about, you know, whether at some point uh, people are going to turn on President Putin in Russia, about sort of regime change, about uh, accountability in the International Criminal Court. I mean, what sort of, how do you think that kind of contributes to prospects for, again, avoiding a long, protracted, uh, very ugly war? Well, the International Criminal Court has opened an investigation. I actually think this is um, a mistake. If the desire is to get the Russians to the negotiating table, telling them that uh, your goal is a change in their government, uh, prosecution of members of their government, that the International Criminal Court doesn't give them a whole lot of incentives to negotiate and back away, does it? So I think I think it's a mistake to push that agenda, but it's out there. So far, we haven't heard it from Western leaders, right? We've heard it from, from members of parliament. We've heard it certainly in kind of the, among the chattering classes. So I do think there might be some value from officials making very clear that that's not their goal, that their goal is to negotiate with Russia. Uh, though I will also say that that becomes more and more noxious as Russia cracks down domestically and begins to look more and more like a totalitarian state, like a dictatorship. And starts raising Ukrainian cities. Uh, yes, as well. We talked a bit last week about the sanctions, this uh, you know, very heavy sanctions packages that have been uh, rolled out. I think you know, it made sense that a lot of the sanctions that were threatened were then put in place. But um, do you get the sense that there's a strategy beyond that with the sanctions, that there's a, a sort of, there's this thinking in Western capitals about what the what the purpose of the sanctions is? I mean, is it about, again, you said you're going to do it, so you have to do it. Is it about trying to change behaviour, in which case, where are the conditions for lifting them? Is it about constraining Russia's options? Yeah, I haven't seen anything about conditions for lifting them. Um, one can assume that they are withdrawal of forces, but I think it would be helpful to communicate that because uh, especially if you have a narrative that it's about a change in government, that we're trying to convince the people of Russia to stand up against their government, um, I don't think that's necessarily the signal you want to send. Uh, so I do worry that it is just the desire to do something to demonstrate one's discontent and to keep doing that as long as the war goes on. Um, and it's an understandable desire. And I think from Ukraine's perspective, it's appealing. There may also be a hope that if you can cripple the Russian economy, you will cripple its ability to keep pursuing this war. But countries are pretty good at continuing to pursue wars, even when they are tremendously weak economically. Um, it's, uh, you know, it certainly hurts the population even more, but governments uh, have done this before. So, again, this is not a thing I would count on working quite that way. Uh, so for that reason, I would say that it really is time to send a very clear signal that sanctions relief is possible if the war ends, if Russian troops withdraw, and potentially some of it is possible under conditions of at least some sorts of deals with Ukraine. Um, and I don't know that that's been adequately thought through and then communicated to Russia. And I mean, maybe I'm too uh, too pessimistic on, on, on this. I mean, you seem less, uh, less pessimistic, but to me, it seems that, you know, given... Again, you have a, a, a Russia that 
seems determined to conquer Ukraine, in essence. Uh, you have much stronger Ukrainian resistance than I think many people expected. An inspiring leader in President Zelensky. At the moment, uh, no problems with uh, running out of weapons. They're fairly well armed. So, I mean, for me, it seems that a grinding war that looks you know, much more like Chechnya or, or Syria with cities destroyed draws on for a long time with the additional risk of, you know, it being on NATO's frontier with, uh, with Russia, danger of, of escalation, you know, tempers running very high on, on both sides. Um, that this, this, for me, sort of almost seems like, you know, if not, if not um, the most likely scenario, then at least increasingly on the cards. But you seem, I mean, you seem more optimistic for, for people at some point coming to their senses or one side at least realising that they're going to get more from talking than they are from fighting. Look, maybe it's wishful thinking on my side. I do think a deal will be struck once one or the other party decides that they don't want to deal with the pain anymore. I think other countries could contribute to that with incentives to both. You know, and again, maybe that's because that's what I'd like to see. I certainly prefer, prefer that to a long dragging war. So kind of the options are the Russians win ugly and fast, the Russians win ugly and slow, or there's a negotiated deal of some sort at some point. Uh, and yes, a miracle could occur and the Ukrainians could defeat a much larger, more capable army. Uh, or, you know, something could happen within, you know, this hope that the Russian government will change its mind. But, you know, I wouldn't put money on that. This is where we get into, you know, extremely difficult and unpalatable politics. But if, you know, at some point they're going to get back to talks, if a, you know, the long war scenario is going to be averted, that's going to involve some really, really ugly compromises. Right. Well, and those might not last, right? So if you imagine a deal where the Ukrainians agree to, quote unquote, neutrality that the Russians are asking for, and demilitarization, I find it really hard to believe that all these people are going to, who have been armed through the course of this process are going to turn in their arms and you know, go home and uh, follow the lead of whatever government is installed. I imagine there will be an insurgency under those conditions. Uh, I really do imagine there will be an insurgency under most conditions where there is a Russian-backed government uh, trying to control most of Ukraine, whether it's Russia trying to occupy it itself or there's some other Ukrainian forces that are doing it. So that's a different kind of long-term ugly. But that's one ugly compromise. I mean, presumably there could be another that leaves, uh, leaves President Zelensky in place. It seems that President Putin has already been offered Ukrainian neutrality even before the war, so that's not going to do it. Are there ugly options beyond a, a, a Russia, a Moscow-backed government in Kiev? The Russians are asking for recognition of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk within the borders of the Soviet regions, you know, kind of of those regions as the full regions, not just the territories that were controlled by the Russian-backed separatists uh, as of nine days ago. Um, so I don't know that. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, you know, in some ways, everything's on the table. In other ways, the Russians, what they're asking for is recognition of their ownership of Crimea, recognition of the independence of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, demilitarized, neutral Ukraine with a change of government, right? This is this whole denazification thing is the change of government. It's a big ask, and 
the Ukrainians are going to keep fighting. You know, what they might or might not agree to short of that is not clear. So, I mean, you know, obviously we don't know what's going to happen in the in the coming days, in the coming months. But clearly this is, has been a sea change for uh, European security uh, in the way that it's perceived in European capitals, Western European capitals. You know, there's a lot that could play out in many, many different ways. But, but it, you know, are uh, uh, some of those changes in in how to manage relations with Russia post a Ukrainian crisis? I mean, are some of the challenges of that becoming clear already? So I think this is something that requires a lot of thought that hasn't uh, gone into policymaking yet. You know, if you are looking at either a protracted conflict or some variation on Russian success in Ukraine, what happens next? Uh, Does NATO become Fortress NATO, uh, where it is only obligated to defend its members? Does NATO instead um, look to protect other countries that aren't NATO members from Russia in case Russia decides that it wants to move on to Moldova or to Georgia? what does the EU do vis-a-vis all of these countries, uh, which have now formally requested membership in the EU? Um, and I think these are decisions that have to be made, and they have to be made in part because if everybody walks away from this feeling unhappy with how it went, uh, feeling that they lost Ukraine and that that was immoral, that maybe they could have done more, then the next crisis is going to come with a lot more demand to do more and that doing more, well, there's nothing more to do except use military force. And so thinking through, you know, even as more NATO troops are being deployed to NATO's eastern flank, even, you know, amid the sort of troop build-up, thinking through uh, how to avoid accidental escalations, thinking through keeping lines of communication open, thinking through how to how to manage future crises. Right. And I think this is the tension we've seen over the last eight years, especially, but honestly, even longer of this. Are you trying to be secure by deterring the other guy and keeping them off balance and keeping them threatened? Or if everybody's doing that, are you increasing the risk of escalation? And if so, do you need to have some communication and some limits on your activities? I think that's going to just be that much uglier, right? It was getting uglier and uglier and uglier over the last eight years. If you've got an outcome in Ukraine that Western states feel reveals their weakness and that they're embarrassed by, um. I think this is going to be really hard, and I think it's really worth thinking about it in advance and trying to plot out a way forward rather than stumbling into it. Olia, let me ask you one more, which is, um, so uh, we'll talk to another colleague in a moment about the vote in the UN General Assembly. Again, overwhelming vote condemning Russia's war. Uh, Only five countries, including Russia, so four plus Russia, voted against the resolution of Belarus, North Korea, Eritrea, Syria. How's that been viewed in, in Moscow? I mean, this is a sort of a, you think what, I think back to Crimea, it was 100 states voted for the Crimea resolution condemning Russia's annexation. 
now there's 141 states voted for the resolution. And that's pretty overwhelming global opposition to what Russia is doing. Has that resonated at all in Moscow? So I think it depends on who and how, right? Uh, so the people who are opposed to the war see this as a demonstration that this was a horrible, horrible mistake. Uh, the people who see the war as a necessary part of Russia's pushback against a West that's trying to hurt it, weaken it, and isolate it, see it as more proof that the West is effectively trying to hurt it, weaken it, and isolate it. Except that this was, what, all of the Gulf, much of the Global South, and even, you know, countries that are normally you would expect to, to have uh, voted for with Russia, what, Cuba, mm -hmm. Nicaragua, China, all abstained. Right, so under U.S. pressure, right? If that's if you're a Russian hard liar. Cuba under U.S. pressure. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I have not, I have not actually seen the Russian narrative on that. It's probably worth looking up and seeing what it is. <gasps> Olya, thanks very much again for coming. Absolutely, happy to do it again. So we're going to look now a bit at dynamics in New York in the UN Security Council, the recent General Assembly vote that we just talked about, how countries around the world view the crisis and sort of more broadly what it means for multilateral crisis diplomacy. I'm going to talk about all this with Richard Gowan, Crisis Group's UN Director. Richard, great to have you back on. It's very good to join you. So, Richard, why don't you start by just saying a word or two about the vote in the General Assembly. Western diplomats, Ukraine itself, I think are understandably proclaiming it as a, as a really a huge success, this support for the resolution, quite a strongly worded resolution condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We're right to see this as an overwhelming global condemnation of what Russia's doing. This was certainly a remarkable moral victory and symbolic victory uh, for the Ukrainians and their allies at the UN. In, over the last few weeks, we have seen a battle to control the political narrative about what is happening in Ukraine playing out at the United Nations. And Russia has tried to frame the Ukrainians as the guilty party, but obviously it has failed in doing so. And I think what we saw this week was a very large percentage of UN members, basically three quarters of UN members, lining up to denounce Russia's version of events and denounce uh, Russia's military operations. This was a, a really stunning diplomatic win. Uh, the problem, of course, is that UN General Assembly resolutions are ultimately pieces of paper. They're not legally binding. And it isn't especially obvious that this will translate into any really major changes on the ground where the important battles are being fought. Richard, you and I chatted a few days ago ahead of the, the vote. Back then, estimates were about 120, 130 votes in support of the resolution. What sort of explains the turnabout in the last few days? I think that you know, a key issue beyond a generally very high level of sympathy for the Ukrainians has been that the US and the European Union and other friends of Kiev uh, have been on a furious lobbying campaign. And we understand that this lobbying campaign went right up to President Biden calling at least one leader uh, in the Gulf um, and asking him to ensure that his country voted the right way. And 
what we hear from those who've worked on it was that coordination between the supporters of Ukraine was was very good. Um, and that wasn't just the Europeans. You know, there were countries like Ghana and Singapore who were involved in working this up. And, the, you know, the results are, are there to see. Even some countries such as Serbia, who'd been expected to abstain, uh, decided at the last moment to support the resolution. And even some countries who we would have thought would back Russia by default, like Cuba and Nicaragua, decided that, no, for once they weren't going to be with Moscow, and they abstained instead. So, you know, this was good diplomacy. But again, I would come back to my, my first point, which is there's also just a real sense that Russia has crossed the Rubicon, and it's very hard for diplomats to ignore the appalling images coming out of Ukraine. I mean, that's something that we, we also hear frequently from our our contacts here, that you know, when you see the destroyed buildings, when you see the refugees, even the most hardened diplomat can't ignore that. There was a very memorable speech uh, in the General Assembly by the uh, new German foreign minister. In it, she sort of made reference to the track record, really, of Western countries in, in the global south. The sort of sense that, you know, sure, Russia's doing this and it, it's an outrage and clearly it's a violation of Ukraine's sovereignty and notwithstanding all the sympathy for Ukraine, you know, in the end, the US did this in Iraq and that this is a sort of sentiment that we've heard a lot of in you know conversations in different parts of the world. But, I mean, in the end, this didn't prevail. I mean, and that, that partly owes to this diplomacy and combined with, again, the sort of just the, the really brazen nature of what Russia's doing. I think what's very interesting is that a lot of Western countries, including Germany, but also the US, have really tried to frame what Russia is doing in terms that are designed to win over the global south. I mean, normally in UN debates, there's a built-in tension between Western countries who often frame problems in terms of human rights and so forth, and then the global south, which tends to prefer a more traditional uh, defence of sovereignty. And in this case, that dichotomy has fallen apart because officials like Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the US ambassador to the UN, have said uh, very plainly what Russia is doing is imperialism. What Russia is doing is against the concept of sovereignty. And if you're an African or an Asian country that holds a very traditional conception of sovereignty, you actually have to condemn Russia. And now that's a very clever argument. It has won over quite a lot of non-Western diplomats here. Now, whether that framing is resonating beyond New York is a different question. Uh, you know, you and I have been talking a lot over the last week to our colleagues in Crisis Groups Africa program. And they say that if you follow the traditional media, but also social media in Africa, actually a, a lot of commentators on the continent are still taking a pretty sceptical position towards the West over Ukraine. They're asking why the US is so concerned about uh, war in Ukraine when it sort of drags its feet in responding to uh, situations um, in Africa. So, you know, the Western argument about colonialism may be working in New York, it, it may not be working more generally. We're recording this on uh, Thursday evening. Crisis Group will have a piece coming out tomorrow that looks at the reactions in different parts of the world 
uh, outside Europe, the US and Russia itself to the Ukraine war. And so we're talking about Africa. You know, the Africa vote, again, you know, there was overwhelming. Again, the, the, the resolution enjoyed overwhelming support. But there were a number of African countries that abstained, none that supported Russia, except for Eritrea. But there were quite a large number that abstained. What do you make of that? I mean, African diplomats have given different explanations for abstaining. And some have essentially argued that whatever their own sympathies over Ukraine, you know, they, they still want to maintain a non-aligned and, and neutral position. Uh, so the Ugandan ambassador, for example, said on Twitter that he had abstained because he is about to chair the non-aligned movement group in New York. I think sort of beyond that stance, we know that some African countries have a very clear national interests in maintaining decent ties with Russia. You know, Mali and the Central African Republic, for example, have drawn pretty close to Moscow um, and have looked to Moscow to um, send private military contractors to help fight rebels on their territory. And for a lot of members of the African group, you know, they are facing very immediate security challenges of their own. And the situation in Ukraine does affect them, knock-on effects, for example, on, on food supplies to Africa, you know, will hurt them. But they, you know, they still have some incentives to you know, keep a slightly lower profile and not offend Moscow too much. And in contrast, the Gulf countries all voted, I think all GCC countries uh, voted for the resolution. And that, notwithstanding a vote by the United Arab Emirates in the Security Council a few days before when the UAE actually abstained on a vote, condemning Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine? I think there was a lot of very direct um, US lobbying um, of the Gulf countries. I mean, the, uh, the Emiratis are, as you say, a particularly interesting case. Over the last month, the UAE had very consciously avoided offending Moscow over Ukraine at the UN and had abstained on the Security Council resolution deploring Moscow's actions. And the reason for that is is pretty clear. Um, it is because in parallel with the Ukraine crisis, the Emiratis have been pursuing a Security Council resolution naming the Houthi group, uh, which recently launched attacks on Abu Dhabi, as a terrorist organisation. So it's the Houthi rebels in, uh, in Yemen. It, exactly. And the, um, you know, th this resolution concerning sanctions on the Houthis came to a vote on the 28th of February. And you know, the Russians in the past have always been quite uh, negative towards the Security Council putting too much pressure on the Houthis. And so the Emiratis understood that they would need to give Russia a quid pro quo over Ukraine. And what that looked like at the end of the day was that the Emiratis abstained on Ukraine in the Security Council and the Russians abstained on uh, the Yemen sanctions resolution. Now, with that in the rearview mirror, the Emiratis were in a better position, I think, to back uh, the resolution condemning Russia in, in the General Assembly, um, which they did. But I think the US also um, lent in pretty hard over the last few days. We're working east, so we will end up with the big question, China. But, but before we get there, I mean, another notable abstention. India, what do you think explains India's abstention? 
I wasn't especially surprised by India's abstention, which followed an earlier abstention in the Security Council on the Ukraine crisis. India does have a a well-developed security relationship with Russia, um, including uh, in terms of acquiring Russian arms. Uh, It does, as you say, see Russia as a counterweight towards um, uh, China. And I think that the Indians will always be wary of breaking uh, with the Russians at the UN. This echoes the early days of the Syria crisis in 2011, when India was also on the Security Council. And at that time, you know, the Indians actually always stayed pretty close to the Russians. Since India joined the Security Council most recently at the beginning of 2021, they have, you know, frequently taken stances close to China and Russia's on um, situations like like Myanmar. Um, they, They do tend to push back against the US at the UN, uh, despite the overall improvement of the US-Indian relationship. And I think one other factor to keep in mind is that India um, has been uh, frustrated and alienated by uh, US policy over Afghanistan. I think the Indians feel that uh, the Americans have not been tough enough on the Taliban. So at the end of the day, New Delhi has lots of reasons to you know, maintain its relationship with uh, the Russians through the UN. And it doesn't actually have that many incentives uh, to uh, shift over to the West, you know, given its other regional security concerns. So then let's talk about China. And as you as you said earlier, in some ways, it was surprising that China abstained both in the UN Security Council a few days before the General Assembly vote, and then in the General Assembly vote itself, um, given the rivalry that's now baked into U.S.-China relations, the the sort of clawing ties between China and Russia, particularly as they relate to the U.S., China has also been caught, obviously similar to India, in this its desire to keep close relations with Russia, but the, the fact that again sovereignty has been a core component of its its foreign policy. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that has played out in New York? I mean, China has looked pretty uncomfortable at different stages of the debate over Ukraine, going all the way back to January, um, when the US convened the first Security Council meeting on on this crisis. Uh, Early on, you know, the Chinese were quite happy to support Russia's complaints about NATO's expansion, and NATO's alleged encirclement um, of uh, of Russia. Uh, That is a narrative about NATO overreach, which um, plays uh, very well with the Chinese, who, of course, are suspicious of US-led alliances. But as the conflict dynamics have become much clearer, you know, it has been evident that Beijing is, is nervous about being seen as an accomplice to what is a very unpopular war in United Nations circles. And the Chinese have been hedging they have said on a number of occasions that they remain committed to the concept of sovereignty, uh, but then they have a, a wonderful and meaningless formula, um, which is that the situation in Ukraine is complicated, which really doesn't tell you very much at all, except that um, they are not going to condemn Russia outright. Uh, last week, when the Security Council was 
considering a resolution on, on the crisis. The Chinese did indicate to the West that um, they would join Russia in vetoing any text that condemned Moscow. But the P3, France, the US and, and UK, uh, were willing to compromise over that. And so they changed the language of the, the draft resolution to deplore. And the Chinese um, abstained on uh, the text deploring Russia's actions. There's been a, quite a lot of loose talk in the Western media about China emerging as a, a mediator of Ukraine. I have to say that we have seen very little substantive evidence around the UN that Beijing wants to play that role. We can't rule it out entirely. But for now, my reading is that China really just wants to keep its head down, uh, incur minimal reputational damage during the crisis. And I'm sure that Beijing is also reasonably happy to see the US getting bogged down in diplomacy over a European war, uh, rather than focusing on the balance of power in Asia, which was until now the Biden administration's priority. Richard, can I just push on that a little bit? Because as, as we heard in the conversation earlier with Oli, I mean, it, it, at least, you know, a plausible scenario now is that the Russians step up their bombardment of Ukrainian cities, that we're really looking at a war of tremendous destruction, uh, a tenacious Ukrainian resistance, whether the government stands or falls, continues, almost certainly supported by Western powers, a conflict that has no clear political end in sight, with all the potential for overspill that a conflict on front lines between Russia and the West entails. I mean, something as potentially dangerous as, as, as that. I mean, it, could nothing spur the Chinese to, even if it's very quiet and even if it's behind the scenes, sort of push the Russians in a direction that might make a mediated end to the conflict more likely? Well, you can never rule anything out. Um, I would say, though, that my guess, and it's only a guess, is that if China were to decide that it wanted to be more proactive in ending this conflict, it wouldn't demonstrate that through the UN. Uh, I think that China is not under any circumstances going to want to, you know, obviously break with Moscow in the Security Council because the two countries do still have quite a lot of common interests. North Korea, DPRK, on Myanmar, uh, and they have lots of incentives to stick together in, in the Security Council. Uh, if China does decide that it needs to be a bit firmer uh, with, with Moscow, then that messaging is going to be bilateral. And you know something that we have seen at various points in, in this crisis is that the Chinese team in, in New York sometimes seem a little uncertain about what Beijing actually wants. Um, there was one Security Council meeting on Ukraine where the Chinese statement was exceptionally short and the the likeliest explanation for this was that Beijing hadn't given its representatives in New York clear instructions about what to say. So um, there are limits to how far we can read Chinese intentions from the behaviour of their, um, their diplomats in Turtle Bay. Richard, could you say a word or two just about um, Antonio Gutierrez, about the UN Secretary General and, and sort of how he's positioned himself on the wall? So Guterres has been through something of a transformation in response to Ukraine. The general view of Guterres prior to this conflict was that he has been instinctively cautious and probably too cautious in getting involved in crisis management 
where he thinks he could hurt his political relations with the major powers. That was something that you and I discussed on the podcast last year. And uh, in January and into early February, I have to say that Guterres continued to take a a very cautious approach um, when it came to dealing with Ukraine. Uh, He said almost nothing of, of any note about the crisis until the last few weeks. And there was quite a lot of you know, pretty frank criticism of him um, behind the scenes from Western diplomats. But the onset of war really has changed how Guterres um, is is acting. And he has been very, very clear in condemning Moscow over the last few weeks in, you know, saying outright that we are seeing a breach of the UN Charter, a much more moral, much more vocal posture than he took before. I think the fact that Guterres uh, shifted in this way uh, also helped um, some non-Western countries shift their own positions over Ukraine. And we've sort of heard, especially in the Security Council, uh, quite a few African, Latin American and and Asian diplomats quoting Guterres in justifying their own criticism of the Russian invasion. The downside of this new moral clarity is that everything we're hearing suggests that Russia has made it fairly clear that it doesn't want Guterres to play any role in mediating this conflict. So for now, uh, it seems like his focus is going to be very much on the humanitarian fallout of the conflict, you know, trying to get aid into Ukraine and also trying to provide assistance to refugees coming out of the country. And Richard, I mean, the the sort of overwhelming support for the resolution in the General Assembly, is there any way that could be converted into uh, some policy... I think that the Human Rights Council in Geneva is now set to launch some sort of commission of inquiry into the war. You know, the immediate impact of setting up a commission of inquiry looking at war crimes uh, may be quite limited. Uh, There's been a very well-respected and very hard-working commission of inquiry looking at Syria um, for a decade now, reporting to the Human Rights Council. Uh, But nonetheless, I think that that will be uh, one step that the UN UN can take to increase accountability about what what Russia is doing in its military operations. Beyond that, there are a lot of UN members and there are congressmen in in Washington uh, who would like to really take an even tougher line um, towards towards Moscow through the UN. Um, There has been a lot of talk in the last week about seeing if if Russia could be thrown out of the organisation completely, um, or at least denied its seat on the Security Council. And the argument for that sort of rests on Russia not being able to take the Soviet Union seat, but presumably that's a, a you know more than a stretch. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would say that passions are running very high. If you actually look at the technicalities of trying to throw Russia out of the UN or throw it out of the Security Council, it's it's almost completely politically impossible. But I think the fact that people are talking about that is indicative of of the fact that Ukraine and its allies in in the UN um, are are really sort of seeing this as a space to pressure Russia, to embarrass Russia. My gut instinct is that what we will see at the UN over Ukraine over the coming weeks and perhaps coming months is, is really a continuation of what we've seen in the last fortnight. There will be more Security Council resolutions. Um that Russia can veto. There will be more um, General Assembly events where 
countries from around the world can condemn Russia. It's going to be a platform for criticism of Moscow. Uh, this does make some significant UN members feel uncomfortable. Uh, I think France would still like to see if there's some way of using the UN to find some common ground with the Russians. Uh, France this week floated a a new resolution in the Security Council, not focusing on the politics of the crisis at all, but just focusing on um, the need to get humanitarian assistance to Ukrainians. And that was seen as, as an effort by France to sort of find a minimum of co common ground with, with Russia, although it doesn't seem to um, have made much progress. The French aside, I think most of Ukraine's allies uh, are more in a mood to condemn Moscow at the UN uh, than to compromise. And in any case, some of the more ambitious options that, that Western policymakers in particular have floated, if you think of sort of safe zones, which some Ukrainian civil society organisations have called for, or no-fly zones, which, you know, in essence involve potentially open conflict between NATO member states and Russia. Now, not only are those probably out of the question still in Western capitals, but that sort of thing is never going to get through the Security Council in any case. So the Security Council wouldn't be the venue for any of those discussions, really. Uh, no, um, Russia is not going to vote for a no-fly zone. Now, I think it's an important point because I think we have to be very frank about why Western countries are so keen to condemn uh, Russia at the UN. One reason you come to the UN, one reason you pass big condemnatory resolutions is often because you want to avoid doing something more concrete. The UN is a, uh, a mechanism for letting off steam in international relations. And I think the, you know, the truth of the matter is that we've seen that over many crises in the last decade, such as Syria. Western countries... Um, come here because they want to win battles over political narratives with Russia. They want to make moral points. But to some extent, it is an alibi for more direct action. Now, that is, that is tragic. You know, there are many people in Myanmar and there are many people in Ethiopia who over the last year have put some faith in the UN coming to their assistance and they've had their heart broken. And anyone in Ukraine who imagines that what's happening at the UN is, is really going to be the prelude to some sort of UN-based concrete intervention in the conflict, uh, is going to have their heart broken too. Richard, if you think of the, the way Western capitals and others are viewing how they respond to the conflict, I mean, there's sort of two, in some ways, and I'm, I'm simplifying, but two poles. One is that, obviously, there's this understandable fury at what Moscow's done. Enormous sympathy for Ukraine and fear, frankly, of the way that Moscow is thinking, in which case the response is really to be, you know, as tough as, as, tough as you can. It's all sorts of sanctions. It's a much stronger NATO build up along NATO's uh, eastern flank. It's arming uh, Ukraine all the way through to language about uh, regime change, uh, potentially holding um, President Putin accountable at the International Criminal Court, which, again, is very unlikely to happen. But that sort of language, I mean, that's sort of one way. And yet, if you think of where the conflict is going, potentially a protracted war that could destroy the country in the way that Syria has been destroyed over the last decade, in the way that Chechnya was destroyed, but with the risks of Western powers, NATO and Russia, actually getting caught up in, in direct conflict themselves. How much sense is there 
among diplomats you've spoken to in New York that somehow there needs to be preservation of space to find President Putin, you know, the, the sort of golden bridge people talk about or, or anything possible to avert that sort of scenario for, for Ukraine? I mean, having been speaking to diplomats, mainly diplomats connected to the Security Council over the last few days, I think that a lot of them do recognise, in theory, that the UN should be there as a channel for last resort diplomacy, if you will, um, as a space where, uh, at a time of very high tensions, the Russians and uh, the West could still talk. The other question I've been asking is, what do you think this does for your diplomacy around other crises? What do you think this does for UN diplomacy around Syria and Afghanistan? you know, let alone Myanmar and and Ethiopia. And generally speaking, the response I'm getting is that for now, council members are going to try to keep diplomacy on those other issues going. They're going to try to avoid the poison from Ukraine spilling over to their debates, for example, on Afghanistan. And that's important because um, the council currently has about two and a half weeks um, to come up with a new mandate for the UN assistance mission in Afghanistan, which does have a rather important role in getting a life-saving assistance to Afghans uh, after the uh, US pullout last year. But beyond these immediate discussions, what I'm finding is that a lot of diplomats say that they feel that if we do face a prolonged war, then it's going to be almost impossible to find compromise positions with the Russians on issues such as getting aid to parts of Syria that are still not under the Assad government's control. There is a feeling that over time you will see uh, a narrowing of the political space. And diplomats differ about you know how rapidly it will narrow. Um, they uh, differ over whether it will be possible to maintain some islands of cooperation on issues like restoring the JCPOA. But generally speaking, there's a lot of pessimism about what this crisis does to the UN as a whole, um, in addition to the UN's capabilities to act as a as some sort of channel or framework for de-escalation discussions on Ukraine. Coming as it does after you know a decade of deteriorating politics on the Security Council, which have impacted the Council's effectiveness on crises around the world already. I mean, I would say that if if we do see a general sort of freezing up of UN diplomacy, that will only be an acceleration of a trend that we have been watching and that, you know, Crisis Group has been chronicling in, in recent years in particular. You know, Russia was already taking a very hard and very disruptive line in Security Council debates over issues not only including Myanmar and Ethiopia, but also over... You know, maintaining uh, an international presence in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And those debates, which were pretty damn difficult already, are now going to get even, even nastier. So, you know, I think that if you try and see this in terms of the overall arc of multilateral cooperation, in a few years' time, we, we may well be talking about this as the moment that the decline of the UN uh, as an international security mechanism uh, sped up. That said, right at the moment, we're not looking at the long arc um, or the big picture. I mean, I think we're just really trying to calculate what, if anything, can be done through the UN as an institution to limit the suffering of Ukrainians. 
um, because you know, in time of war, that's that's got to be your priority. Richard, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. This is Hold Your Fire, a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including the piece we talked about, looking at reactions from around the world to the Ukraine war, on our website, crisisgroup.org. Follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. You can also follow Olya and Richard on Twitter, both well worth following. Olya's at Olya Olika, Richard's at Richard Gowan one Thanks, of course, to our producers, Sam Mendick, Kevin Murphy, Finn Johnson, and thanks, as ever, to all our listeners. Please feel free to get in touch with questions or comments, leave a positive rating or review if you like the show. Over the next few weeks, we'll, of course, still be covering Ukraine, but we've also got episodes soon on the announcement that French forces are going to put out of Mali. We'll have a special episode for International Women's Day. We'll probably do something soon on ISIS in Syria. And, of course, let's see what happens with the Iran nuclear deal. It's getting near crunch time. Please do tune in for some of those. Take good care. And I hope you join us again next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps to detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.